You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. The Trek Files, Season 10, Episode 7, Enterprise Armament Memo, December 9th, 1986. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. All right, Star Trek fans, all you Star Trek historians, and yeah, you tech heads are going to love this week's visit also. I promised you, I promised you another another visit with uh, this week's guest. If you need a clue, of course, take a look at our Facebook page. You can get your podcast anywhere. You can get your Trek files anywhere, but our documents are only there at facebook.com slash the Trek files. Um, here's an audio sample. You want to read the whole, the whole memo and then stick around because I will be right back with our very special returning guest this week. I think we should definitely consider more armament, or at least more points of armament on the Enterprise. The old ship only fired phasers or photon torpedoes from a couple of points on the saucer. This made for very predictable effect shots and made the Enterprise a less than formidable ship. We cannot overlook the fact that if the Enterprise's technology has advanced, so must her armament and her preparation for any emergency situation should she need that power. Wow, everybody, there you go. Words of the late, great Dorothy Fontana. You know, who I normally think of as the person who is developing all things Vulcan and Spock and, you know, inventing Andorians and Tellarites <laughs> and all those things. And here we've got Dorothy pontificating over how to update the Enterprise for the next generation here in the think tank years of uh, weeks of late 1986. Uh, here she's here she's uh, opining about the armaments on the Enterprise, which is very techy. So good on you, Dorothy. It just goes to show that we never know who's going to have input in the circle, uh, even when it comes to ship design, even when it comes to the nerdier points that we reserve for you know our ship folk fans and folks. Yes, in the art department, like our returning guest this week. Uh, so glad to have back the uh, the art art design guild uh, production design award of excellence co winner, many times nominee, and you know him as the developer of so much of what we love about Star Trek in the Berman era, and now, Mr. John Eves. John, it's so great to have you back with us. I was glad. I was glad I could get you stopped moving long enough to snare you in to get get you behind the mic again. <laughs> well, there you go. Hi, Larry. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me back too. Oh, anytime, anytime, John. Well, you know, this is an idea. We think about the art department being this huddle. And even if you're like a monkish artist and different, you know, I think we were talking last time you dropped by about how it's more of a it's even more collaboration now than it used to be, which is weird because you all are isolated in and out of COVID even more now. But, you know, zooming together. Yeah, well, you know, that's the best, the best part about being uh, in, a, in a world where you can collaborate. And that was like the big thing when I started the model shop. I didn't know that different people did different things. And so um, when I, I was, Top Gun was my first movie, the first one, and everyone had a special job. So we had the guy that did the, the metal machine work. Then we had the guy that did the fiberglass, then the guy that did the painting. And so all of these hands come in to make this magic. 
And uh, it, it's great to be a part of that kind of stuff. And our department's the same way. And so uh, great. It's a, it's a great way to do things. So um, get to meet new people. And, and a lot of times the people you're working with think of things that you wouldn't have thought of or didn't think of. Right. And so when they right. add that magic themselves in, it's, it's really very fun to see. And uh, I, I love the collaboration of our department. Well, and the, the analog days were that way. And then, of course, eventually the, the model would go to uh, a model shop like or, or a, a shooter like ILM or on the TV series MHG. And they'd you know shoot it and mount it. And then the visual effects staff would come over uh, and light it and, and all of that. And then it would be edited. And now it's digital. It's a little more streamlined on the front end. But you've still got it goes from your hands. How many hands does a ship before we see it on screen? E- even in the digital age, how does that process go? Uh, it, it's interesting because <laughs> I'm still, I'm still a, an analog drawer designer. I'm still <laughs> the last of the pencil guys, I think. And uh, everyone that hires me kind of likes it that way. And uh, <laughs> I like it too. But uh, I'll do everything in, in, in 2D with pencil. Uh, Jim Martin taught me about blue pencils when I met him on, on uh, Deep Space Nine. And so I drew everything in a sketch like that. And once we get something to prove, then I'll throw it in Photoshop and do a nice Photoshop kind of rendering of things. Then it will go to a modeler, uh, for example, Scott Schneider or Doug Drexler, uh, Sean Hargraves, uh, whoever is, is kind of attached to the same project. We'll take it from there, make a loose model, and then we'll kind of correlate um ideas as we go so i'll get like the rough model back and then i'll tweak that a little bit with little things and it'll go back and then they'll tweak things. basically making it 3d from your 2d yeah Yeah, even if it's an angled shot it's it's still 2d on paper and and bringing it to life 3d yeah and i'll usually do a rough set of plans too so we can work out that Mm -hmm. that geometry but then uh, at the end i'll get it back and i'll do a paint over and and from there goes the special effects uh then they they will either use the model that say Doug has made, or they'll revamp it to fit whatever whatever format of rendering they're using for the VFX files, and uh, it will go through there. Then it will be rendered. It will be then put into a visual effects shop. So I'd say th- anywhere from three to ten different hands, probably minimal uh, from right. from start to finish. So uh, and then even in the digital it, age is what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so so what did you, what was your so I. I enjoyed this very short little memo here from Dorothy. Again, they're they're getting next generation off the ground, but here's a case. And obviously, it starts with Gene's brainchild, and and the and the group he has around him before they hire an art staff. Although um, uh, people were being hired very early on, Andy Probert and Mike Akuda and Rick Sternbach and Herman Zimmerman were all within a few weeks of this memo. Uh, people starting to get there, you know, at the very beginning. But you, it reminds you that it's not just an art department thing, right? You have to sometimes they're your bosses <laughs> up the chain of the producers, and you have to get things approved. But also, you know, they're germinating ideas. But also, just the writers on staff and all. Um, what, what, what? what you know, but I, are you with like me? You think of Dorothy Fontana as not a techie person, and here she is thinking ahead about how do we update the armament, which is a valid point they had to do. How do you update all aspects of the ship, and how does it look on the sets, and how does it look externally? Mm-hmm. What's yeah? You know, what what comes to mind when you see this, and what's been your experience over the years? That good and bad. <laughs> she was amazing, and, and you know she she really did put a lot of thought into what she did when she was when she was developing and writing things, and and those notes were really vital on what you did with the D, and that's when you developed the phaser strip, and you 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 designed it. Yeah, that was a, amazing. It looks like she's the one who who thought of the phaser strip first. You know, a lot of 
credit doesn't go to the writers a lot of times. And, and it depends on who's writing. Sometimes they will just say, we have a new ship. It's big and ugly and scary. and looks like a spider. And then we just make <laughs> it run with it. And then there's other writers. Uh, give us give us 10 versions and we'll tell you what we like or whatever. <laughs> Like, yeah. like, uh, like, uh, like uh, uh, Ron Moore, for example, he's very specific when he described uh, the Enterprise E in the script. Uh, he gave a basic, it's a new Enterprise, but it's designed to fight the Borg. And that that alone tells you it's going to mm-hmm. be a little bit different. And um, he goes, uh, and he'd give like a little breakdown. We have forward figures in this scene, rear phases in this one. So without making like a blueprint map in one quick note throughout his script, that he uh, put together when he described the Enterprise, he would he would describe these little elements, and so you'd know where to put things, where these things have to do and function, and um, so we kind of design it. And like what uh, Dorothy was saying with the with the D, uh, she's basing it on the old original TV series Enterprise, like you're you're mentioning, and uh, visually, you know, it was beautiful because he had the phasers and the and that beautiful blue mm-hmm. beam. And the, torpedoes and they always launch somewhere on that that inner diameter slope just depending on who was doing the effects that we could be supposedly right and where are the dimples where are the dimples on the amt model kit and all of that yeah yeah Yeah. and and, and when you think of matt jeffrey's doing the design he was um he was kind of a world war ii airplane fan fanatic so Mm -hmm. to say and everything from world war ii had forward facing guns like the p40 the p51 you sit in a cockpit your guns are facing forward so it just seems natural that's the the design element that he followed so everything's going to be a front-on attack or defense and with the d it was different because you know how the more sense was put into space that you're not just left and right forward and backward you're up and down you got things coming from all different directions so she really thought a lot of thought into that like how would you defend yourself if something comes from above or below yeah and And it it really well it's also the timing because in the 60s star trek was so revolutionary on a Mm -hmm. continued basis it wasn't a one-off ship for a sci-fi movie it was going to be a series but they were it was just a revolution just to get it on screen and on paper and have the revolutionary you know it wasn't a it wasn't a rocket ship everybody was thrown by how cool the enterprise was saucer and the nacelles and the but 20 years later we'd watch those episodes for ages and people said yeah we need phasers that face backwards we need photons that shoot out the back we need to be you know it's like 20 years of learning taught them those lessons and and it's been the same updating everything from the 80s and 90s for the modern day i'd say yeah, exactly. And uh, as, I, as I was saying, another thing with, with the writers, um, um, uh, Ron Moore, for example, I'm bringing him up again. When we had the Vulcan lander ship. Um, yeah, we, for first we contact. To, yeah, we didn't know what to call it. And so I went over to him one day and I go, hey, do you want to give this little little ship a name? And he goes, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. And so he calls me back later. He goes, I'm going to name it T. Plana Hoth after the, the, the Vulcan uh character from uh, from one of the from of the writings right. and 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 that was a different time when we did shows in the 80s and the 90s and we were all encompassed at paramount everyone was accessible and star trek in those days was a was a very unique mm-hmm. entity and um you could go visit costumes you could go visit the the composers you could go watch the scoring you could go see what's going on in visual effects and all this stuff and it made it easier as an artist or another uh department to get information because a lot of things i'd base alien ships on mike akuda's whatever he was doing pro logo 
for that particular race. I'd use that as the basis for the architecture. Mm -hmm. And then I'd go over and see what Bob Blackman was doing with the costumes. Then you could get a color tone of what he was thinking. And then you could take all this to the writer and go, hey, I have a question about this little thing you mentioned shipwise, this background vessel. And, 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 it was a very unique thing. And then Herman, you know, would, would, would guide death would have these meetings a couple times a week and the writers would be there. And it was a very interesting, wonderful world to be in. And then also the, you'd have the stuntmen there and they go, Hey, when you're doing the ship, I need a railing about this high so I can fly over the top of it or, or throw the bad guy. And, and so everyone had this input and, Unfortunately, today with with the kind of the COVID world and and um, we're not at a home base anymore. Yeah. A lot of that uh, kind of intel and camaraderie is is missing. But it was it was. Uh, uh, but the writers still do the same things. They write these really spectacular little things that you can use as the notes. And uh, a lot of times we'll get um, sections of the script cut out. Like this is what the writer says. And we'll, we'll incorporate that almost literally into the design work and stuff. So I think there's such a vital, important part. And I love when they when they're seeing things in their head that we get to visualize. So it, it, it's really a, a unique partnership to take their written words and try and translate it yeah. into something that you'll that hopefully will make them happy is, is what they're seeing visually and in, in their tangible words. So. Well, that's, you know, over the long term, that's on the front end. And I, I can't let you go without talking about something that's really, I feel like it's unique to Star Trek. I know we've had like the rise of cosplay and they're following the wardrobe folks and people love building props. And of course, if you're doing a fan film or you're shooting, a, you know, you're doing sets and everything. But I don't know what else is the equivalent of... Uh, I laughingly call it the ship porn community, <laughs> but all yeah. of the the tech heads, the ship, the ship guys and gals, um, Star Trek. It's always been that way, but it's we've had such a proliferation. I think the the fallow years really ramped it up because there was nothing else to do, so we were revisiting that. But now there all the different series and all of that and digital and and you've got Star Trek Online. You've got that. You know, you've got fans who have broken through, like Sean Tagorno, who won the contest. You know, for mm -hmm. the Titan, and now it's that's coming up on screen and being adapted. What, what, how is that like knowing that there's that fan base out? You know, the ships of the line calendar that Doug has overseen for years. It's is that kind of unique to Star Trek, and what is that like? Like, what's the input you get back? And because sometimes people are, you know, deathly critical, also <laughs> like, no, oh, yeah. not that, and they may not always understand that collaboration. It's not just you dreaming up and whatever you want to do. You know, it has to go through the process, but. That's right. something that's unique to Star Trek too, isn't it? The fan input. Well, it, you know, with the CG world now, it's amazing because people have 3D printers and they have all this stuff at home. But um, what's amazing about what you're you're talking about is is most of us in Star Trek are Star Trek fans, and we just got that lucky break to be a part of the the the, the shows. But um, uh, like like Sean, you're mentioning with he won the contest to do the uh, the the Enterprise, and now we have uh, Bill Krauss. And it was funny because it must have been 10 years ago. I was at Wonderfest, Kentucky. It's a, it's a, it's a model making show down there. And, there. and we judged the models. And there was this one starship that you saw it from across the room. Like, oh, my gosh, what is that? And you run over and you look at it. And it, it, it was just it wasn't a kid. It was scratch built. It was just remarkable design. The execution was brilliant. And I wound up judging that model. And, and I, I asked later, I go, who did this? I go, oh, it was a guy named Bill Krauss. And he was like the super secret 
passionate starship designer that was a ridiculously fantastic model maker and he started making these things and he got the attention of of, of dave blass and terry metallis and they brought him in and that's what's kind of neat about the world it is today is because there's a lot of the fan stuff there's a lot of wonderful things and a lot of not so wonderful things but um <laughs> but you know it doesn't it doesn't matter because you're you're an artist and whatever your your arena is you're enjoying being a fan and you get mm-hmm. to make this stuff and in, in these very rare instances a lot of this stuff is is getting the attention of the right people and if the opportunity arise uh like getting bill cross in uh, to do the Titan and the other stuff. And then Sean got to uh, kind of do a lot of work on the side as well. And it's, it's a different world and it's a wonderful world because these doors are opening to people that would probably never have that opportunity unless their passion was so strong and cosplays the same way. And uh, they see the costumes. And this is another thing that just blows my mind after Picard aired the other night, just the trailer. Let's go back to the trailer a few months ago. Within days, people had grown and designed little models of the Titan that were up to scrutiny. Pretty accurate. I'm going, how do they get this information? Because in the trailer, you see the top or the front, but you don't see the bottom. But somehow they get that information. And to see this happen, and especially right now, a week after Picard Season 3, Episode 1 came out, almost every model has already been built pretty masterfully by fans. I want to buy them all, but uh, I want to buy one of those from everybody. Even as we have hope that that the Eagle Moss ship idea that can be resurrected and we'll get new ships again, you know, but even before that, that this is, well, you know, the old days when you were taking Polaroids off your TV screen or you were (laughs) trying to get a grab off of your forehead VCR in fast mode or whatever, we've cut, you know, now everything's digital. We're we're there. So I got to let you go, but here's here's a parting thought. So, you know, 50 words or less, what makes, if you're going to do a new Star Trek series, you're designing the hero ship, the lead ship. What makes a Star Trek ship after all these years? Is like it, a, hero is ship. It... a hero ship usually comes with, with great fear, lots of coffee, and, 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 and <laughs> where will you go? When it's like an episodical ship on the, on, on the side, it's very easy, it's very fun. But when you're under that pressure to do a hero ship, it, it's scary, and that's where everybody's hands come together. And uh, you know, famously, gonna... you did the Enterprise E, which I may not have mentioned for First Contact and onward, the Sovereign class. That was such a happy, scary, lucky, wonderful day. <laughs> and again, and again, so many hands were there to help, and and that's the best part about it. So when you're doing it, everyone's got ideas and everyone's got notes, and so what makes a hero ship is the amount of of help you have behind it to make it go where it needs to go. And if it's written wonderfully, uh, you know what to do. And and having a great boss like Dave or Herman, you can't go wrong. So uh, you follow their direction and and, and and try to give them what they hired you for. So that a hero ship is it's, it's magical, but it definitely comes from the collaboration that's behind it. Yeah, yeah, which we, we forget. We give all you guys the credit and then there's still that collaboration, so. Uh, Anyway, boy, John, thank you so much for dropping by and dropping these uh, pearls of wisdom, but also these insights. And we, I think, I'm really happy because I think we packed an awful lot into our into our short visit. Uh, just keeping up with the world then and the world today of uh, Star Trek nerd, ship nerdity uh, that we all love so much. <laughs> and may it fly forever. So that's what makes it more fun. We started in a wonderful time to yeah be in Star yeah. Trek. So. 
Yeah. Well, thank you, and we'll have to have you back sometime when we can when we can corral you. Sounds good. Okay. Okay. Well, so thank you, Larry. Okay, sure thing. Hey, everyone. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Now, all of our documents and your chance to comment, please do, are available right there at Facebook.com/slash The Trek Files. Now, for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. Uh, yeah, that's me, <laughs> at LarryNimacek.com. That's where you can also link in for all the new Trek Files swag and shirts at our Tee Public shop, too. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com.